Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol made in Ireland. Contains paracetamol. Always read the label. Good morning. Siege of Troy. Fall of Troy. Troy Town. Take your pick. But after 10 days of controversy and questions, by Wednesday night... Evening from the newsroom. The Minister of State, Robert Troy, has announced that he's resigning from government following weeks of controversy over his errors in declaring his property ownership to a register of politicians' interests. In a statement, the Fianna Fáil TD reiterated that he had not tried to conceal anything and that his biggest offence was his lack of due diligence. The Longford Westmeath deputy apologised for his... So, despite enjoying the support of the Taoiseach and the Thánaiste, Robert Troy had decided to resign. The final push perhaps coming when Green Party leader Eamon Ryan came on Wednesday's News at One, calling for not one, but two inquiries. On Thursday's Morning Ireland, political commentator and former government adviser Gerard Howland joined Anya, and in his view, the summer didn't help. August is so dangerous and you can add Robert Troy's name now, can't you, to the list. Catherine Zapone, Dara Kaliri, Phil Hogan. He's just the latest casualty. Yes, I mean, it is a, a politically dangerous time because there's very little news. And if you become the news, getting out of that frame becomes extremely difficult. Uh, things intensify and this is another example of that. But it's not the cause of it. There's an underlying cause which is separate. And I mean, after Eamon Ryan came out yesterday, was his resignation inevitable or do you think that he could have handled this differently and still be in his job this morning as minister? I suppose a tactical political mistake that Robert Troy made, and this is not to confuse it with, with the underlying issue, is that he should have got a lot more of his own news out a lot sooner himself. And I think that uh, too much of his news came about him came afterwards or from other sources. And you're always best to say everything you can about yourself first. Uh, and he could have done a better job, I think, for himself in that regard. That's a tactical observation. But as Anya pointed out in the current climate, Robert Troy's property portfolio wasn't necessarily a good look. The nature of the controversy, I suppose, in the middle of a housing crisis, could the government have afforded to have the opposition on the first day of the thought coming back ahead of the budget and what could well be a winter of discontent? They couldn't have afforded to offer Sinn Féin such an open go, could they? No, uh, and that is the nub of the problem. In politics, there's no point in going to your HR department looking for redress or going to see your union representative. Uh, none of those rules apply. Uh, you're either an asset or you're a liability. And Robert Troy became a liability. Uh, times have changed in the 20 years since that young man uh, left school to get a job got his first house got himself on the road from a very very humble background the world has changed in those days 20 years ago credit was, was very accessible all sorts of people were getting a lot of loans more than some of them should perhaps everyone was either buying houses or talking about buying houses in fact you were nobody if you weren't in the market for an apartment in Bulgaria or, or something somewhere but this world we're in now 20 years later is where nobody can get a house uh, unless you're uh, you know, particularly wealthy and it's that changed political context that gives a poignancy and an edge and a toxicity to this issue that again amplifies amplifies uh, what is an administrative mess from his perspective, uh, but there is no case for saying the man has been dishonest. Later in the morning, Claire spoke to Dr Jennifer Kavanagh, law lecturer at Southeast Technological University. 
He says, I bought my first house at the age of 20 as I went straight into a job after school. So I was in a position to purchase my first property then. There aren't many people now who will be in that position. No, I mean, I'm one year younger than Robert Troy and I certainly don't have 11 houses and I'd love to know how he did it. Um, the, the thing is, it really does highlight the fact that people who are their 40s and above had these sorts of opportunities. People from 39 below, the, the millennials or the zennials who've gone through the worst of the recessions are, are looking at situations where they are stuck in rental accommodation, where they haven't a hope of even getting a deposit for one house. And it's really, in a way, inflamed people who feel that that they haven't gotten a proper break between recessions and everything, and that it's really just highlighting how some people have had it so lucky. Now, fair juice to them if you can get a house when you're 20, but I, I wouldn't know many friends of mine who are one year older than me who actually have a house to begin with. Also on the line, Fintan O'Toole of the Irish Times. While I accept my mistakes, he says, I would like to state that the narrative being put forward by some media and some in the opposition that landlords are villains is simply wrong. And he finds that hugely problematic. He says that the housing situation uh, is obviously in, in, a, in a difficult place and that he continues to work to help his constituents who are having issues with housing. But he says vilifying landlords is not the answer. Do you think that he was vilified for being a landlord? Uh, look, there might have been a little element of that, but but that's that's it, it's actually overwhelmingly a distraction from the fundamental issue. This is not about the fact that he was a landlord. The, the same considerations would apply precisely if he was an importer of bananas. You know, this is to do with the very very simple, understandable principle that you know everybody in public office has to understand, which is that you declare your private interests. Whether those interests happen to be in terms of the ownership of property and the rental of property, or they're in any other business, you know, it really doesn't matter. It's, it's, it, it, the, the astonishing thing with, with what Robert Troy was telling us was that he um, misinterpreted the, the law. Now, in order to misinterpret the law, you would have had to read it, right? So, so, so we know at the very least that he read the ethics legislation and it's impossible, if you read the ethics legislation, to not understand the most basic thing about it, which is you declare all your interests. So this whole idea that this is about you know, a campaign against landlords and all that, unfortunately, it's typical of what we get, which is the non-apology apology, you know, saying sorry, but then blaming everybody else. There's only one person to blame for this, and that's Robert Troy. Which brings us to Tuesday's News at One and the Brian Dobson Probe. Robert Troy told Brian he had 11 properties, nine rented out. So, a lot to declare. And in relation to the non-disclosure of, I think it was three properties um, during a number of years, you, you, your explanation for that is that you misunderstood, did you, the, the guidelines, the members' interest guidelines? Yeah, that's what I was saying. The root of the issue here is that I misinterpreted the guidelines. I was under the impression, wrongly, that it was only properties that was in my interest as of the 31st of a particular year that I needed to include. And that's why uh, some properties were not fully uh, accounted for. And those, and those, those, properties, those properties were? It, those properties were... Um, uh, 
the property I sold at Ashfield Mullingar, it was accounted for for seven years. It wasn't accounted for in the eight year, the year I sold it. Uh, the property at Oak Crest Mullingar, it was accounted for the year I purchased. It wasn't accounted for the year I sold it. Uh, the property in Longford was not included at all because I bought and sold it uh, in the one particular year. Uh, and there was another property at Dublin Bridge that was uh, included, but again, it wasn't included in the year uh, that I that I disposed of that property. So. The, the actual point I'd like to make here, Brian, there is an allegation or a charge that somehow I tried to conceal my interests from the public. And that is factually incorrect. I, bar one hmm. property, have made reference to every other interest, every other property uh, at some stage in my members' interest returns. Hmm. I admit not fully. I admit in certain in instances not in the right location. But I did not try to conceal any of my property interests uh, in, in the lifetime of this since I was elected well, to the Well one of dollar. them you've admitted because you bought and sold it the same year never appeared anywhere. That That is correct. Yeah, but so that was completely concealed. No, no, that was I did not try to conceal it. That was an error in my interpretation of the requirements. Did you, did you, read, the, did you read the Register of Members' Interests before you signed it? I think Brian, to be honest, I'm, I'm guilty that I didn't give the process the due diligence that it deserved. And among the issues addressed in the interview, Brian Dobson asked Robert Troy about two RAS rental accommodation scheme contracts he had with Westmeath County Council. You were availing of, of RAS when you spoke in relation to the scheme in the Dáil in 2014. At that time, I had two RAS schemes, yes. Did you declare that interest at the time? But at the time, I didn't think I had to declare the RAS on the members' interest statement. Well, leaving that aside, just in, in the course of your <laughs> speaking to the Dáil on this issue, did, did it occur to you that you should say, actually, I have an interest in this and, and this is my interest? Well, I, I don't think, to be frank, I can leave it aside because if I felt that it was uh, a conflict of interest, I would have I would have declared it. If I felt that the RAS uh, agreement should have been on the members' interest, of course, naturally, I would have said that. But you didn't feel it was a dialogue. conflict of interest, benefiting from the scheme, but at the same time speaking I, about it. I, I didn't I didn't feel it had to be declared on the members' interest, and I'll ex- I'll explain to you why I didn't feel it had to be included on the members' interest. The reason being uh, that I felt. The contract was between me and the tenant. It was the tenant. Uh, it was because of the tenant's circumstances that they were in receipt. Well, the money was of, paid by the county council. It was, as is the same Direct, as, directly to you. As is the same as with the HAP payment. The money is paid by the t- county council directly to the landlord, not just to me, to any landlord. But they do not have to be declared because the relationship here is between the landlord and the tenant. I can accept while people are coming to... So you had, sorry, just be clear, you, as far as you're concerned, you had no contractual relationship with, with Westmeath County Council in relation to these two RAS schemes? There is a, a relationship with Westmeath County Council that the council will pay a rent based on the tenancy of the person in the property. So it's a contract property. between you and the county council? It is, similarly. And as, contracts as should be declared if, they're, if they exceed six, what, six and a half thousand? Well, Brian, only two weeks ago when I was preparing for my returns, I, I rang SIPO and SIPO were unable to say with clarity whether it had to be declared or not. They wanted to see the contract and in the avoidance of wasting time of getting the contract from the council, what I did was I included it. But Brian Dobson returned to his original question. 
When you addressed the Dáil in 2014 on these issues and taking a, v- a particular position in relation to the, R- the Ross scheme, you, you, didn't, you didn't think to declare the interest at that stage. Brian, I, I addressed the Dáil on a miscellaneous housing bill. The way it's been portrayed is if I went into the Dáil and started kicking and screaming wanting an increase uh, of payments for my, myself personally, I addressed the housing miscellaneous bill as a, as a constituent C- TD, as an opposition TD, as somebody who works hard in their constituency and knows the challenges that people are facing uh, at the moment and it was in that context that I spoke in the Dáil in 2014 articulating the views of my constituents. You were talking about what you characterised as a lack of funding for a scheme for, for which you were directly a beneficiary. But I was talking about that was one point I made. I talked yeah. about domestic abuse victims. I talked about the tenant purchase scheme. Mm. I talked about antisocial behaviour and I did raise the point that in 2014 that the, the rental the price of rent was increasing mm. and that government would need to correspond with supports to ensure... More funding pe- for RIS, of which you were a beneficiary. To, to, to ensure that people could get access to housing. That was my motivating factor there, Brian. And this is how Robert Troy ended that interview. I want to say that I take full responsibility for my errors. As soon as they were identified to me, I amended my returns. I have said to the Taoiseach and the Taunishta, I am very happy to address the Dáil uh, and answer any questions on this issue. I'm happy to meet SIPO. I'm happy to meet the RTB. I'm an open book. I have absolutely nothing to hide. I never tried to conceal anything and I never tried to use my public position for private gain. But I do believe the forum to deal with this is either in the Dáil, uh, with RTB or with SIPO. And I don't believe the forum is for journalists calling to my wife's parents' home or to the homes of my tenants currently. Uh, I don't think that's fair. And I will make myself available in September to the Dáil to SIPO and to the RTB. Robert Troy with Brian Dobson on Tuesday's News at One. And in accepting his resignation with regret, Taoiseach Michal Martin paid tribute to his former minister describing him as very committed, hardworking and efficient. But what of his Longford Westmeath constituents? Angus Cox was in Mullingar for Morning Ireland early on Thursday. It'll be... I suppose you could say a very boring if no one ever made a mistake. I know him from he was a schoolboy. I only live about four miles away from him and I find him a very, very hard-working fella. Do you think he should have stepped down? Maybe he took the right decision. You know, I think maybe he did. Well, I think it's fair enough, yeah, that he did step down. You know, he kind of can't be that unaware of his responsibilities. He, he won't because he'd be still working as a DD, like, you know, so I think that uh, he made the right decision and... Hopefully everything works out all right for him. Yeah, he should, yeah. And the fact now Longford Westmead is losing a, a minister, what do you make of that? Is that much of a loss? No loss. No loss at all. Somebody else to step in. The view from Westmead. At least they got the rose. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Prizes if you can guess the band. And bonus points if you can name the album. Everybody seemed to be, and they make no bones about this whatsoever, this insane, coked up, paranoid, brash, completely unsophisticated, just totally detached from reality. And this record is detached from reality. It's kind of, it's entertaining to listen to in one sense and absolutely mortifying. It's a very interesting time capsule. 
So many contenders, but it is in fact the third Oasis album, Be Here Now, which was released this week 25 years ago, and for Arena, a nice tee-up to the Liam Gallagher gig. And as Kay pointed out, it may well have been the fastest-selling album in UK chart history, but really, as Eamon Sweeney said, no excuse. It's often kind of described as, you know, the biggest flop of all time. Well, it's not a flop if it's sold 9 million records. It's probably arguably the best, worst album of all time. Um, as in, it really does sum up an era that was changing. And I think Oasis, 1997, we look back now, the records that we're going to be talking about in 100 years' time from 1997 are going to be Radiohead's OK Computer. And 10 days after... Uh, this album was released. You had the death of Lady Diana in a car crash in Paris. The public mood in England completely, completely changed. Um, and then I think very different kind of indie pop stars emerged from that. People like Coldplay and Travis. Nice, wholesome and lots of melody. The problem with beer here now is it's just like a dirge. It's just like this wall of noise. Now that is the mature music journalist. But way back when, Eamon Sweeney had gotten up early to queue at Tower Records to get the album. He didn't hate it so much then. All around the world, back 25 years ago, I don't know, I'm mortified that I like that song. I hear it now and kind of go... OK, OK, let's, let's have a listen to All Around the World and we'll have a chat about it then. So, Eamon, all around the world, do you feel any differently about it, having listened to it there, even ever uh, so briefly? Well, not as bad as if had we listened to the entire nine minutes of that, because <laughs> it goes on and it builds and it builds. I think you're half embarrassed that you liked it so much before and now yeah, you're just... Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Bind you, do, do you know what I mean? Um, Stand By Me, I think, still kind of uh, uh, stands up. It's fun to look back on this album. You know, um, it's... I. Nostalgia can be a terrifying thing at times. I don't think we're ever going to see the likes of this album ever again, which is probably a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) From Arena, Dancing Nancy was the dock on one and it was a story of skullduggery, jiving and the bombing of a Mayo dance hall. We were having the breakfast and I was on the pen, praying, and the children came back with the news, the town hall is bombed. And of course, I dropped the pen on the cooker and dashed out the door off for the town hall see what's happened. There was no warning given before the bomb went off. The blast was heard by a telephone operator, Peter Cullinan, in the nearby post office. He rushed the guardie and firemen to the scene. This detective came down to my house and he was kind of insinuating to me first, was I the cause of this bomb? And I got thick with him. I said, are you trying to insinuate to me? that I am responsible for something here. I am telling you, I says, who did it? Nancy Murphy and Kong did that. End of story. And he shrugged me off, he says. That's not true. And how, how were you that sure? I was sure, but no one else. Knew straight away. And they, they thought it might be paramilitaries and they thought it might be... I, I knew well it was Nancy Murphy. I said she was a bad joke and I knew I should do it. <sighs> a bad joke. Dancing Nancy. The dock on one. On Liveline... Joe 
fighting the odds. It's a probably a one in a billion chance. It was certainly a long shot. Siobhan had phoned in. What, what happened, Siobhan? So I was travelling out um, at a Dublin airport on the 4th of August with my daughter. Yeah. Um, sorry, every time I talk about it, sorry. And, um, Take your time. You know, it was, we were flying out like a quarter to six that evening and um, we left the house and, you know, I was kind of in a bit of a hurry yeah. getting things ready, thinking about the queues at the airport. So yeah, yeah. I took my three rings, my wedding ring, my engagement ring and a dress ring. Yeah. And being the day it was, I was a bit warm. The age I am, I was a bit sweating. So I, I shoved my rings into my purse, into a pouch of my purse. Okay. And I got to the airport and I said, oh, I'll put them on later when I've settled down a bit. Um, my daughter and I went through Terminal 1 that day and we were flying out Ryanair to Salute. And when we landed in Salute, sorry. Take your time. <laughs> sorry. How long? Well, I'll, 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 I'll ask you a few questions. How long, yeah. how long have you had the rings? Um, 25 years. And where did you buy them? Um, I bought it in, you know, the, the McDowell Happy Ring House. Oh, on the of course. Like opposite the GPO. It was her engagement ring. Gone. They searched the plane. When the plane landed, um, we waited for everybody to get off the plane and my daughter and I were down on our hands and knees and we were calling around and making sure that it wasn't there but we couldn't see anywhere. Okay. Okay, now you you, you plan to pass this ring on to your daughter. Yeah. That's a plan, yeah. yeah, sent a yeah, yeah, you okay. know, I was saying to your sorry, to your colleague this morning, you know, I still have the little ring box and McDonald's McDonald's okay. happy ring box and yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things that, as I was saying this morning, it's something that's been consistent in my life for the last 25 years. Yeah. And then it's just, I don't know, it's kind of a strange feeling when you, you know, when you lose it, it's like, it, you know, kind of losing a little okay. person or something. Yeah, it's strange. Her only thought, maybe, gate 116 and the bar. When I opened my purse to pay for coffees, whatever, yeah. um, I, I thought my bank card was missing. Okay. So I was, I, you know, there was a queue behind me waiting, obviously, to get served, and I was panicking, like, yeah. God, where's my, where's my bank card? And I was, I was looking really hard in my purse. So when I landed in and saluted that evening, and I went to put my rings on me, and when that engagement ring was missing, well, I was like, holy God. And then, I don't know, like, you know, I'd been to a duty-free, I'd been to Burger King with my daughter, but that's, I don't know why, for some reason I'm thinking, was it around gate 116 where that cafe okay. bar is? Now, would you believe, Siobhan, that yesterday... We got a phone call from a man called Joseph Holden. Joe. Hi. Now, this is your one in a million man. Joe Holden, why did you contact Liveline yesterday? I think you can guess where this is going. Because, Joe, I was travelling to Palermo on the 4th of August. Okay. And I was going through to Hamlet 1. Yeah. Between 4 and 5 o'clock. Right. And I came upon this lovely little solitaire ring. And I decided not to hand it up to security. I just felt a bit awkward. Okay. So I said I'd hold on to it. And been the son of an ex-guard, yeah. I do my own research when I got back from holidays. Well done. So I'm back now, and I found your show yesterday. Yeah. And there you go. And <laughs> Siobhan, it's the same ring. It's the same ring. Yes. Well, unless, oh God, well, I can't believe it. I'm so happy. Well, unless there was another ring lost. Talk about one in a million. Oh, yeah. Joe, well, one in a billion. Morning, it was one in a billion chances. Yeah. Joe, Joe, it's so small. 
Joe, where, where did you find it again? I was going up to get uh, a drink for myself and my wife, and <laughs> it was just on the counter where you, where oh, you ah. pay the barman. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. It just goes to show you there's still some goodness in the world. <sighs> Ring back on finger. And after all that sweetness and light, lest we rot our teeth entirely, here is comedian Jack D with Catherine. And the title of his new tour is called Off the Telly, which of course means he hates the telly. Uh, I just, I can't stand how it makes you, it just sucks you into watching this drivel, you know. Just night after night, you kind of, I got to that point where you turn off the TV and think, I just, I just sat there watching idiots doing things they're not very good at. And, um, you know, there's one thing about celebrities now is that when you become, you know, like with, with comedians, if you become good at being a comedian, people don't want you to be a comedian on television anymore. They want you to do something they know you can't do, like bake or dance or something stupid like that. You know, <laughs> And I get asked to do these things and I can't stand it. I don't want to, da- I don't want to dance in public. If I want to dance in public, I'll join the police. You know, it's just <laughs> not for me. And I, you know, the whole baking thing and it, it just, it becomes a great big circus. Everyone gets so excited about it. Oh, did you see it last night? Wasn't it marvellous? No, it wasn't. It was a total waste of time. So that's really where, I, that's really my take on it. That would be a firm bake-off from our Jack. However, he did feel well-placed to offer advice. You've become something of an agony, Uncle. Uh, you've written yeah. a book called What Is Your Problem? Um, yeah. Where you basically deal with life's major dilemmas. And um, I'd love to know how you got into self-help um, or, yeah. or how did it you was, get qualified in this area particularly? It was a lockdown. It was a lockdown project. And I thought, I'm going to, you know, how, how can I give something back? And I think most people Sounds like you. always... Yeah, and people have always related to me as a kind of, you know, shoulder to cry on, a nice mm. guy to listen to your problems. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to take it seriously. I got qualified and I did an online course with the Ricelip Institute of Advanced Learning. And um, I signed up. And honestly, between signing up and later in the afternoon when I got my certificate of completion, that's one of the best things I've ever done. <laughs> and I, you know, wow. so I wasn't going to do it without knowing what I'm talking about. And wow. now I felt qualified to help people with their problems. Yes. So like what, four or five hours of training? Well, there was a coffee break and lunch, of course. But okay. yeah, you're kind of just about, yeah. Yeah, and so I get it. You really want to help people. You're kind of known for that, that generous yeah, spirit. That's right, that's yeah. right. And uh, and people people gravitate towards me. They think, I've got a problem. It's a bit personal, it's a bit difficult. I know who to ask. <laughs> you know, Jack is the guy, you know, and, and that's why I'm here, you know. And so I wrote the book and, um, and it's out there now. And as to the best advice he had ever been given... He offered this. I think probably my dad, um, when I, I, I failed my uh, exams, my A-levels to get into university when I was 18. And, uh, and I said, I asked him what I should do next. And he said, I sh- if I were you, I'd just have some breakfast. Right. And in, in, in a funny way, you know, it was kind of a glib thing to say, but in a funny way, it was the best thing to, to have said because you just think, all right, well, yeah, just do the next thing one step at a time and uh, it can make it, make it happen. I mean, at the time, I didn't, I didn't feel very grateful for that piece of advice. I thought, well, you know, you're meant to be my dad. You're meant to give me fatherly advice. But, uh, mm. you know, I got through one way or another. I found a way through channeling the Stoics at the very least. But the professional raised eyebrow is now 60, so Catwin asked him how his brand of humour was faring in 2022. You've been in comedy for more than three decades and um, yeah. for somebody like you, like, what's it like being a comedian in 2022? Because we are much more, I suppose, 
self-censoring, self do you feel yeah. that you have to self-censor um, or do you have to kind of second guess what you might well, say you know, in case I, it's I, offensive? I, you know, I, I think I don't. I mean, I think I, I listen to my own conscience, but I don't listen to other people's sensitivities. And I, I think once you start, once you start kind of holding back, mm. uh, then you're you're kind of you're you're cheating the audience, you know, because you're not being truthful, and you and and your audience want that, you know, they need that, you know, and I, and I do think that comedy is one of those areas where you can say things that uh, you don't mean, you know, and it's it's for comic effect. That's the whole point of it. And uh, if you start clamping down on comedy, comedy, then you should start com- clamping down on on cinema and video games and. Uh, and mm. art in general, poetry, goodness knows what, you should stop, you know, sing songs, you know, mm. um, because someone somewhere's going to be offended. So I think the I think the real answer is to just uh, go by your conscience and, 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 and keep doing what you're doing. Jack D with Catherine. And another person to whom we might turn for advice, guidance, wisdom or just book recommendations, Ryan. Very quick favour to ask. I'm heading away for a two-night break, escaping from four children with my husband. Right? You want a book recommendation? Two-night break? No kids? You looking for a book? <laughs> you must be kidding. You want to give me a book recommendation? Your husband would kill me. Uh, <laughs> I have trouble winning a lot of these guys over in the first place. And it's probably half the problem is I'm recommending really good books. God, two nights! Not planning on leaving our lovely hotel much. What? Even more reason not to recommend a book. So I want something that's not too heavy, but also has my attention straight away. Look beside you. You're married to him. <laughs> not too long. Anyway, promise uh, we'll put it down <laughs> now and then for my husband. I completely trust your recommendations. Thank you. How about no book recommendations for the two-night break and we'll have a chat after you come home. Good stuff. Keeping the national spark alive. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Wednesday was both Ukrainian Independence Day and the six-month anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. On Drive Time, John Cook spoke to some Ukrainian refugees in Limerick. My name is Svetlana. I'm from Ukraine in city in Zaporizhia. You're crying today as songs yeah. from your, your homeland are being yes, sung here in Limerick. Tell me how you feel. I'm very sad. I'm missing my family and very afraid of my country. Olena, tell me about today's event. People very moved, singing songs for their home country, your national anthem as well. This means a lot. You know, this day is very important for all of us and for me because, uh, you know, I was only six-year-old girl when Ukraine uh, gained its independence. Now we have it and we will not uh, let anybody take it from us. Your country's under attack from Russia, though. Are you still confident six months on that, that you can regain that country you love, that you will get to go home? Yes, we will, and it will be, I don't know when it will be, but definitely we will be free, we will be independent, because Ukraine, it's always about, you know, dignity and independence and about the struggle for life. And Sarah got the view of reporter John Sweeney, who is in the Donbass region in Ukraine. 
I know uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky said today that the Ukrainian forces will fight until the end. But increasingly, the analysis that I'm hearing, John, is that the end may very well stretch into the end of 2023 or beyond. Is that the sense that you're getting? And how are, how's the morale amongst people, you know, facing into that prospect? The idea of some kind of endless war is grim. At the same time, the Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian soldiers I've been hanging out, uh, out with the last five days, their morale is, is high. They're defending their homes. I'm an optimist, and you can call me a fool, but I believe that the Ukrainians with the, these, the HIMARS long-range rocket artillery system, which the Americans have given them, not enough, but they've given them a, a bit to destroy a lot of Russian ammo dumps. And that's had an effect since I've been in the Donbass for five days. The rate of fire has gone down, and everybody says that. So I'm a bit, I'm an optimist, and I think it's possible that the Ukrainian army can defeat the Russian army. But we have to give Ukrainians much more heavy, heavy metal than they've had before. Mm. At the moment, the Ukrainians are the people who are doing the dying, and we're not supporting them enough. I think that's a general criticism of the West, and I think it's a fair one. So yes, there's lots of pressure on the Ukrainian side. There's pressure on the monster and the Kremlin too. And I think he's weaker than we all think he is. He right. may well fall faster than we think. All right. Well, as you say, you are an optimist, John, but it's, it's nice to hear, <laughs> hear some optimism occasionally on this programme. And, and thank you very much for joining us. You can but hope. And as the war continues, its effects are reverberating across Europe. And at home, questions swirled this week about our energy supply, particularly as it emerged that the government has commissioned a review into what has led to the worries that demand could outstrip supply at times this winter. On Wednesday's News at One, Brian spoke to Green Party leader Eamon Ryan, Minister for the Environment, Climate, Communications and Transport. And he started with a tone not far off apocalyptic. So, huge increases we've seen in energy bills. The energy regulator proposing this peak time tariff plan, warnings that hundreds of thousands of households could face energy poverty this winter, reports of plans being drawn up by government for fuel rationing, even concern in government, we believe, at maintaining civil order. How bad could the energy crisis be this winter? No one should ignore the fact that we're facing into not just this winter, but probably the winter after, very, very challenging situation. And the main reason for that is the war in Ukraine, where energy has been used as a weapon of war, where the price today of the forward price for gas next winter is beyond any precedent, beyond any compare. And that has a knock-on consequence in terms of the price of electricity because half of our electricity comes from uh, using gas. So it is a huge concern and it's a real challenge that the government will and will be able to face up to and help this country through. We will be able to keep the lights on. Well, that's a relief. Now, after that, a lot of over and back about supply and timelines and the need to switch to renewables. But in the heel of the hunt, this was the upshot. I'm still looking for an answer to my question about what happens over not the next two to three years, but the next two to three months. We expect to be able to provide the power that this country needs in the next two to three months. We don't envisage the sort of you read in the papers and elsewhere kind of very dramatic scenarios in terms of uh, real problems in that regard. I'll be honest, Brian. But that's the contingency planning, isn't it? Yes, well, you always contingency plan to every eventuality, but we don't expect it. The real challenge of this coming winter is going to be on the price side. And that for the householder is particularly important and, and for businesses. 
Minister Eamon Ryan, so qualified confidence on the supply side, but rising costs and everyone is looking to save what they can. With Claire, some small tips that might just help cut down on energy bills. Here is Madeleine Murray, founder and co-CEO of Change by Degrees. The most energy efficiency thing you can do is use um, appliances less. Mm -hmm. Stop boiling the kettle. Oh, the kettle is a great one. 40% of people boil the kettle about five times a day. And interestingly, the biggest carbon footprint associated with your average cup of tea is in the use of the energy required to make the water hot. Because kettles have a really high uh, wattage and they need a high current to work. And a survey in 2016 in the UK actually showed that about three quarters of 86,000 homes admitted to overfilling kettles and they paid approximately, and this is mind boggling, uh, £68 million more in their electricity bills than they should have. Mm. And not to wreck your buzz entirely, but long lingering showers, not so good. By shortening your shower time from, say, 15 minutes to five minutes in an electric shower, uh, you could save yourself up to €90 Euros per year, according to research. And, and then think about all the appliances that are just on standby in your house. Basically, any appliance or gadget in your home that has a red light on, is that means it's on standby. And that means it's zapping energy and costing you money. Okay. What, um, what about the impact of leaving the fridge open? So um, I found somewhere that if for every 20 seconds the door is kept open, it can take up to 45 minutes for the fridge to return to a set temperature. And I mean, it's obviously burning more energy in order yeah. to do that. No, absolutely. So anywhere you can, I mean, we have to keep our fridges on all the time. That's absolutely essential. But anywhere you can, it's again about being efficient and, and, and using, your, using your head and being as smart as possible okay. around the, the usage of your appliances and your gadgets. The fun we'll be having this winter. On the county measure with Vincent Woods, Fermanagh. Water defines so much in this landscape. In the Marble Arch Caves, part of the Kulkuk Geopark, you enter a subterranean world and a vast one. It's like entering another hemisphere or a film set somewhere between Harry Potter and Game of Thrones. A strong river coursing through amazing-shaped stalagmites and stalactites, a cool, coursing air, the drip of water from above. It's an entire world here, and one very familiar to development officer Michelle Shannon, who says she now feels almost more comfortable down here in the caves than above ground. It all began when she was in school. This person walked into the classroom one day and said... We're thinking of bringing some of you out caving um, to try it. And would anybody be interested? And I don't know why, but the the hand went up in the classroom and we went into a cave system in Bow. And I was just taken. Then when I was 18, I ended up volunteering again when I went to Romania on a four-week caving expedition where we camped on the side of the Carpathian Mountains. And I remember this massive cave entrance. It was about 40 metres high. And I was just like, whoa. And I was walking into the cave entrance and through the river. And the river was only knee, knee deep. It wasn't that deep at all. And as I walked in, I was standing in the river and I looked up and I went, wow, the roof is so high. And then I went, oh, wow, the roof is moving. And then I took in the smell and I realized there was bats. And all the people in the distance could hear was me laugh and then looked at me and I fell flat on my back. Thousands of bats flew over the top of me. 
And the whole time I was just lying there in the stream laughing because it was just so surreal. <laughs> so that memory has stuck in my head forever. It would. <laughs> <laughs> On Mooney Goes Wild, this in Derek's garden at four in the morning. Why is this fox barking at this time of the year? Is it a bit late? I thought they only barked in the mating season. And the other question I have is, why are the eyes of the fox glowing? Tackling that bark, here's Richard. The famous shriek you always hear in films, often at the wrong time of year, and the back and the soundtrack put in, is the Bixen's scream, which sounds a bit like that. But there is another sound that foxes do, and that is a kind of warning bark for their cubs when the cubs are venturing forth and they may be in danger. Ah, I see. So it's just a warning, a communication. That's that sorted. But what about those eyes, those glowing eyes? This is because they have a layer at the back of their eyes called no less than tapetum lucidum. And this layer of tapetum lucidum is a light reflecting system at the back of their retinas. So even the small amount of light at four in the morning, which would be quite a lot in the city, is reflected into their eyes and reflected back out again through their retina, giving this glowing effect. And if there's any artificial light coming from your camera or your house or what have you, that amplifies that. And it allows the fox to see very well, you know, in the dark, because Mm. we wouldn't see in the dark so very well as he can. And it's because they have this tapetum lucidum, no less. And not to be outdone, here's Niall Hatch, because while nocturnal creatures do indeed have better nighttime vision than us humans, they do lose a little in focus and detail. The eyesight of a, of a fox or a cat isn't actually that good. Uh, they can see movement very well, but they're not so good at discerning all the differences. Uh, so, for example, it's thought that cats may not be able to distinguish between different human faces. They know us from the sounds and from the smells that we have and the way we may move, but they don't necessarily recognise our faces as being different from each other, which is, which is quite Whereas dogs do. Well, well, perhaps we're not fully sure of that either. We're not quite sure of how dogs get that information. We know dogs can follow human uh, eye they movement. They do, they do. I mean, if you've been away for a while and you come back, if you look at any video online, you see the dogs, they know who the person is immediately. Yes, they do and they do. It's not some stranger walking towards them. And vision may be a big component of that but it also has to do with sound and with smell as well, very much so. Derek, confident they'll recognise his face. But if he sounds a little sceptical about the expert opinion, so does Sarah in this next clip. In contention, research from the University of York claiming that those who haven't studied so much as a croissant or a du café of French in 50 years have the same recall as those students just finishing up exams. Here she is with Fergal Murphy, lecturer in linguistics in UCD. I did French for five years in school. I think I did very well in my Leaving Cert exam from my memory of it. And I went to France on holidays uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And I basically could, <laughs> I could basically could only remember how to say hello and thank you. Yeah. And, and again, that's what most people's experience would be. But what's interesting in the paper you're talking about was one of the things they said was in an emergency, you suddenly find out that you do have this vocabulary available to you as your brain goes looking for it. Um, So I I would suggest that in your situation, you hadn't used French, had no reason to use French for many years. And so when you went to France, the pathways, as it were, to the French words hadn't been trodden upon for a while, you know, the Mm. neural networks. So when you try to activate them, there's a thing called the activation threshold hypothesis, which basically says if you're not using it, it takes more effort 
to use it when you do get around to using it. But, you know, uh, according to the paper we're talking about, probably had there been an emergency, uh, you were in a car crash or something, suddenly your brain would have went to voiture rather than car straight away. Interesting. And then this, asking for a friend, of course. Um, I wonder, Fergal, I have a friend who maintains that he speaks much better French and German when he's a little bit drunk. Is that all part of the same idea, that your brain maybe operates a bit differently? Uh, no, it's not his brain. It is his perception and his okay. willingness okay. to make a mistake. Okay. Um, you know, we're all smarter when we're drunk. We know that's one of the stages of drunkenness. It <laughs> yeah. ends up in invisibility where, you know, no one can see you taking your clothes off in the middle of the street or something. But no, he, he, his willingness to make mistakes, his, his inhibitions are lowered. So now he's more fluent in French because he's not censoring himself. Adults are very bad about uh, not willing to, not, not allowing themselves to be seen to make a mistake or get something wrong. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. I am away for the next two weeks testing out that alcohol fluency theory. So in the meantime, fin rouge, blanc, rosé garçon, mais oui. Ah,